You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello, and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. This is the Curio Corner episode for Christy Snarsky. I am Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Melissa Watson. And you did not join me for the interview portion. I did not, which I'm bummed about because mm-hmm. I also collect cruels. Yes. And seeing her collection of cruels makes my heart hurt. Makes you envious. Because I want them all. Mm-hmm. She has quite the collection. Yes. And a beautiful gallery wall. I love them. Mm-hmm. It looked like several gallery walls. Yes. It was a great conversation. And really, like I spent the week afterwards, like kind of looking through her Instagram posts to be like different ways to decorate or Uh to find things for a collection. And we didn't speak about this, but she mentioned something to me in Spellcheck during the interview Mm -hmm. about setting boundaries. Okay. We'll get to the the cruel and the curio part of this. But she has a thing in her collecting where she has boundaries set for things that come into the home. Okay. You have to meet a certain criteria and then like stopping a collection altogether. She's kind of a completist. Okay. So Spelch and I spent some time like when we went antiquing last week because we uh-huh. did go about the boundaries put in place around collections. And so I'll start with mine and you can think of what boundaries you need to instill in your, which you already have great boundaries. Okay. Of like what you bring home. So we were walking around an antique mall. And of course, you see lots of things that you would, of course, like to bring home with you. Mm-hmm. And I used to not be like a, a chippy, like I didn't care about chips or different things like that yeah. in certain pieces. And that was one of the boundaries I'm instilling is damage to an item outside of its age. Okay. And the, I guess, the collectability of it. Like if it's something that I can find a lot of, yeah, I'm going to be more kind of cut and dry with if I purchase it versus... That makes sense. If it's, you know, obviously a Victorian era, something's going to have some damage to it. Yeah. That and not bringing home uh, useless shit like tins and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I always think about like little cups, little um, plates, little, you know, trinket catchers. And mm-hmm. I always think like, oh, this would be useful. But at a certain point, you just have too many... And you don't need any more. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that. Like, so if if it's something in terms of a utilitarian object that I think, oh, I can use this thing. If I bring that thing home, then something else needs to go. Yeah. Because it, it has to be something out. really special. Because mm-hmm. I don't have a whole lot of space in my house. When it comes to art or knickknacks, mm-hmm. I, I just have to love it. That's my yeah. boundary is like... If I am crazy about it, I don't care how many I have. Mm -hmm. I would have a million of them because I adore them. Yes. And so if it's something that's close to the color scheme I want or if it's it's just not exactly right, then Mm -hmm. uh, obviously I won't bring it home. But if it's something that I am absolutely in love with... Yeah. Even if it has some damage, I will, I'll, I'll usually bring it home. Yeah. That trumps all rules. Yeah. 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 Same. Cause if, especially if I come across something I've been looking for for a long time. Oh, yeah. Like for sure. Price goes out the window. Exactly. All that shit goes out the window. Yep. But if it's something where I'm like, oh, I like those things because they look nice in this grouping. Yeah. Then I'm like, eh. Also, stupid little idiots forever always. and always bring always. them home. But I, I, I tend to get myself into trouble. Be- like, for example, um, 
I have an exorbitant amount of candles in my home right now. You do. And I like candles and I burn candles, you know, pretty regularly, once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. But I have enough candles right now to last me until I die. I'll come take some. Thank you. Because, oh, and so will Spelch. Oh, perfect. She's into it. Because I, I have like, and so unless there is a candle that I find that has the best scent or is so gorgeous, I can't pass up, ain't no more candles coming mm. to my house. See, I burn candles every day. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That little hutch when you first walk in uh-huh. that has the candles, I light those every day. Wow. I didn't know in that. In the evening because it's delightful. And I bought a whole pack of LED candles uh-huh. that are, it, here's your tip of the week. LED candles inside of a fairy light. Oh, yeah. And mine Beautiful. are on a timer. They have them at Sam's Club right now. But And there was some some Black Friday bullshit deals and stuff <laughs> with those. But I didn't buy any. But they, I have them in my vintage fairy lights because I'm terrified of like forgetting a lit candle inside of one oh, of those, yeah. which I guess are safer. But I have... Um... And I put them in my curio cabinet. Oh, well, that's perfect because mm-hmm. it doesn't take up any extra space then. Yeah. They're, and they're hidden away and it's not going to start a fire. Mm-hmm. I have um, what used to be the glass, I don't know, Do they are they called pendants? The, they're coverings for a glass lamp. Mm-hmm. A shade? A sh- yeah, I guess it would be a shade. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're pink and they're so gorgeous. But, you know, I don't have any way to use it as mm-hmm. it's originally intended. So I flip them upside down. And put just those little tea light oh, LED candles inside. That's and so smart. they make just the most beautiful little flickering. And they're so cool. They're pink and gold. I got them from my friend Kelly. Hi, Kelly. They're beautiful. Uh, that's a great idea. Yeah. In a way to use those. Uh-huh. I love using old light fixtures in that way. Yeah. Different pieces of lamps and whatever else. Mm-hmm. 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 I'm also going to, I have these sconces I got forever ago from Riley, and they're going to go on my bedside. And they make emergency light bulbs that are battery operated. Oh. So you don't have to have any wiring for them. That's cool. So you place them in the socket uh-huh. with their little battery power thing and they'll work as lights. That is so cool. Yeah. I've never thought about that. Because yeah. that, I mean, yeah, if you buy sconces, then suddenly you have to wire things up. And if mm-hmm. you don't have to do that, that's much better. I don't want to put, I have plaster and lath walls. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do that. Well, and you know, the other option is to, to um, change the the wire in cord. There's a word for this that I can't think of right now. Oh yeah, you can rewire it. You can rewire it, but it yeah, you can convert you can convert it to a plug in. Mm-hmm. But and then you I'll still have the cord hanging down. I had started that process, uh-huh. but the wiring on the inside of these sconces are cloth wrapped. Oh. They're old wiring, and it's, scary. and it's wired to a switch into the bulb. Uh-huh. And one of them is like wired incorrectly, and so to splice it and hook it all up, I didn't feel great about. Yeah, having that against the wall for sure. And and yeah, if you're a licensed electrician, that's one thing. But that's me, not us. That's me. But it brings up the uh, topic of safety uh-huh. around electricity. Yes. And one of the items we spoke about with Christy is uh, Evergleam trees. It was one of my holy grail pieces oh, yeah. that I recently got. Aluminum Christmas trees. Yes. And Spelltrick sent me some great articles. And one of them, I'm going to have to order this, is the Evergleam book. It's the 50th oh, anniversary. Cool. Of them, which is so rad. So I'm going to read a little bit from the this article from Evergleambook.com Evergleam and then from another little article about aluminum 
Christmas trees. Uh-huh. So this book tells the story of the 1959 debut of aluminum Christmas trees by the Aluminum Specialty Company of Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which if you're a true crime fan, you know the name of that town. If you're not, like Melissa's not. face. <laughs> I don't know what that is. There, um, It was a Netflix special that the name is escaping me currently. Uh, Making a Murderer. Making a Murderer. Thank oh, you. okay. Fascinating. Um, so this book details the, so there's new layout and design, twice as large as the first edition. But it talks about like sidebar stories, sidebar stories, excuse mm-hmm. me, of the history behind with the photos. There's cameos from previous employees that worked in this factory, photographs of people with their aluminum Christmas trees. Um, and the other article, this comes from atomicranch.com, and it's a great little synopsis of what they were, why they're important, and why they were only here for such a short amount mm-hmm. of time. So they were first introduced in 1958, coming out of Wisconsin, right, from the Aluminum Specialty Company. They worked to develop a light, cheap aluminum tree that was dubbed the Evergleam in time for Christmas of 1959. Okay. So the company was started a year previously. The price point for these trees originally was $25. Oh, my gosh. And they originally produced, so they started, we're like, we're doing 25, and we're going to produce several hundred of these trees and see if they sell. They thought for sure they would sell, and sell they did. They were such a big success because the trend leaned towards the atomic age of the yes. 60s, and they were available in several colors. We had silver, green, yellow, and pink. Always wanted a pink one. Same. And homeowners often paired them with color wheels Mm -hmm. that rotated to throw colored light on the tree because it is not safe. Yeah, hanging lights on an aluminum tree is a surefire way to burn your house down. Yes. Like second only to deep frying a turkey in your garage. Oh, God. Yeah. So that's why the safety portion came in. Of Like, please, for the love of God, if you have a vintage aluminum tree. Do not put any electronics on it. At all. None. Uh, and it's like, correct me if I'm wrong. It's because if they short out, Mm -hmm. the whole thing will become just a blazing inferno. Conduit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they had these projecting lamps. I used to own an aluminum Christmas tree Mm -hmm. and we had a vintage color wheel. So it was a projecting lamp and in front of the lamp was a a little wheel on a motor Mm -hmm. that had different colors. And so as the wheel turned, it would shine different colors onto your tree. And it's like acting basically Mm -hmm. as a disco ball, this tree. And it's reflecting all the light. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. And they make reproducted reproduction. <laughs> they make reproduction. They make versions of these now. And you mm-hmm. can also get them and use safer light bulbs in them so they yes. don't get as warm. You could use an LED bulb, mm-hmm. have it on a timer, you know, all those things. Safety yep. first and foremost. And you would not believe the demise of the aluminum tree. So in 1965, this very famous Christmas movie came out, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh huh. And Charlie, of course, falls in love with this little dopey, sad tree, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Yep. That caused the downfall of Evergleam aluminum trees and reignited the love for a real Christmas tree. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, in that show, he kind of demeans the aluminum trees. Yeah. He walks up to one and knocks on it, and it just sounds, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, knocking on metal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, He's like, they're so soulless. Yeah. And Lucy's trying to talk him into, like, maybe paint it pink. Yeah. Yeah. Which was funny to me. So the Everglade, they stopped producing trees in 1969. And by the 70s, they were virtually non-existent on the market. It's crazy to me that it was just such a short blip. 
Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the end of the space age thing, yeah. right? It was yeah, it a real sense. short window in time that all of that stuff was really popular. But we have, of course, seen a resurgence mm-hmm. of purchasing these trees. And this blog lists out some things to be aware of when you're purchasing before buying an aluminum Christmas tree. Okay. Make sure the tree comes with the paper sleeves to protect the branches. Yes. My new one that I got, the wall hanging one, had never been out of the box. Oh, and had all the tubes, and you have to pull them the, the opposite the direction of what the tree is. Yep, because otherwise you will ruin your yes. pom-poms. Mm-hmm. The cost of a full-size vintage aluminum tree can range anywhere from several hundred dollars to several thousand dollars. Yeah, Silver tends to be the least expensive, and pink, of course, is the rarest one. Uh-huh. A recent one sold for over $3,000. Holy cow. So that's like one of those things, if you come across it at a decent price, yeah. buy it. I, um, let's see, it was 2010, 2009, I bought one off of eBay. It was a six foot tall in the original box with the original paper sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pretty sure I paid less than $200 for it. Like mm-hmm. maybe 150. Wow. That's incredible. And that, you know, that, well, how long ago was that? 12 years ago, mm-hmm. 13 years ago. Um, and um, I no longer have that tree, unfortunately. So I want, yeah. wanted to get a new one and I, I just... Can't afford it. It's mm. a bummer. That is a bummer. It's a bummer. I saw one that was listed in like Boise, mm-hmm. and it was like an eight foot aluminum tree. Oh my gosh! And it was like five or six hundred dollars, which oh, is a great. That's price, a great price. But I couldn't make it to Boise, and I that wouldn't fit in my house. Yeah. Um, there's also you can find across the internet if you Google reproduction color wheels, you can find them. Oh yeah, the color wheels are easy to find. I found my aluminum Christmas tree was a tip from a listener. Miss Mandy sent me the link to eBay. Thanks, Mandy. And I bid on it, and I paid in all transparency ninety five dollars for my wall hanging aluminum tree which is a great price mm-hmm. but it is a very small tree it's only what yeah two feet two feet yeah but, but it's delightful it's so cool i can't wait to put my little mini shiny brights on it mm-hmm. and they have reproduction trees or things you can find close to the aesthetic of not exactly the same shape yeah but like a couple of years ago the one in the basement that's been up for an entire year uh so last year is a silver kind of tinsel colored skinny pencil tree. Yeah. And it gives it has a reproduction vintage topper. It's got all my vintage ornaments on it. And it has vintage vibes. Yeah. But it's not the shape of the vintage trees mm-hmm. is so it's weird because each branch is the same length. Mm-hmm. And then they go the dowel in the center is drilled with holes at varying angles. Mm-hmm. And so it do, it's not shaped like a, a tree, really, Mm-mm. because the, the lower branches are the same length as the upper branches. They just tilt more. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you don't see people, any businesses now selling that shape of tree anymore. Yeah. My wall one has different size branches. Oh, really? Shorter to longest. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't, because I was assuming like every other Evergleam tree that they're the same size. And when Spelltrick and I were putting it together, I was like, oh, this one is much shorter than this well, one. And there was cool. a specific top piece uh-huh. for mine. Interesting. But it's the same wooden dowel flat yeah. on the back with the, the varying degrees. Of, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Cool. It was, um, it's definitely one of the things I would like to own, but I'm going to need to not have cats. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be comes. like 10 years from now. Hopefully. A and, pink one, I'm manifesting it now. Yeah. Hopefully, they won't be so popular and the prices will come down. Uh, please. Please. But I think that that is going to be not very likely. I think that you're just going to get more and more expensive. Yeah. That might happen with your cruels. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's going to... 
Yeah. As the, the 70s surgeons continues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we ready to talk about Cruels? We are. Um, so I kind of was looking into the history of Cruels. And basically, Cruel Embroidery is not identified with particular styles of designs, but rather is embroidery with the use of this wool thread. And so there's a lot, you know, when I think of a cruel, I think of like a floral embroidery mm-hmm. wall hanging. And general, like the all the ones that I have are from the 70s, basically. Yeah. Um, but they have a long history. Um, you know, obviously embroidery has been around since the dawn of time. Right. Um, but... The earliest surviving example of cruel work is the the word I can't pronounce, Bayo, B-A-Y-E-U-X. Bayo tapestry, which is not a, actually a tapestry at all. The story of this Norman conquest was embroidered on linen fabric with worsted wool. Huh. And that is from the 11th to 12th century, it looks like. Wow. Um, but, you know, there, there's lots of examples of cruel all throughout history. Generally, what I see is floral, mm-hmm. um, but the stuff that I collect is basically they were kits mm-hmm. that um, people in you know the seventies and whenever else could go buy these kits and then make them themselves, hang them on the wall. They had a beautiful piece of artwork. Yeah, and so you see a lot of duplicates. Um, I have one that is it's uh, long and short, so it's long and narrow. And it's daisies on a yellow background. Uh, every time I see a gallery wall of cruel work on Instagram, I always see this piece. So it must have been like you went and like everybody had that yeah. that particular kit. Um, and I I have like five or six pieces that I'm absolutely in love with. And then I have five or six more that are in my closet that don't have the colors that I'm crazy about. Mm-hmm. And so I... I should just get rid of them, but for some reason I have an attachment to them. I the only cruels I have are ones that were given to me, mm-hmm. and like my first cruel as a child was the one of like the girl that's like it's like the back of her. Oh yeah, yeah, or yeah. the side of her, and it's like her hair is like three D off of the thing. I had yeah. those, and then I got some other ones as a gift from somebody. But I don't have any cruel work that hangs in my house. You I have some embroidery cross stitch. Yeah, you gave me some. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. Because I came across them, I think, at the DI, and I was like, I know people that like these. But Yeah. My favorite one is um, hanging on the gallery wall in my living room, mm-hmm. and it is a bouquet, basically. But my favorite part about it is that there is a – it looks like a mason jar full of chives with the chive blossoms. Oh, yeah. And it's really so pretty. pretty. I just love – because there's, like, pansies and a few other flowers. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at it again. Um, and then there's just like this vase of chives. And I, I love, I love how weird that is. Mm-hmm. It's cool. I love that. And like hobby kits and stuff for crafts are always interesting to me. Like the, the fads of those things, uh-huh. you know, like we had a lot of those. I had a lot of those growing up. Yeah. Like different things. The last estate sale we did had so many different kinds of kits for crafts mm-hmm. that I was like, it was like nostalgic. Yeah. Like the. Um, Latch hook? Latch hook. Thank you. Uh, the latch hook and stuff. Like, I just, I like the idea of someone sitting down and putting that much time and mm-hmm. effort and love into it. And, like, obviously, not to say that if it's not a kit, you can't do that. But right. I just, I think I, there's something that I really like about these kits. Because mm-hmm. I, I collect a bunch of, like, these craft style kits, like the cruel work. 
Um, I have a lot paint of paint by numbers. Yeah, you the paint, by, paint numbers, by numbers, mm-hmm. the string and nail art. Mm-hmm. Um, I have several of those, which we have one to do th- this winter. Yes, we have to do those. But it's just like I don't know. It's just like somebody put so much time and effort, and it's not like that they were doing it professionally or anything. It was just you know somebody's mom or somebody's mm-hmm. sister was like made this thing because they cared to, to do it, mm-hmm. and I really like that. Well, no, I like for me crafting has always felt very idyllic. Yeah, right. Like sitting and doing something like that feels like it's so different for me every day. It's that's why I think for like Christmas time, the nostalgia of crafting is so big to me because mm-hmm. we always did crafting, always craft around the holidays because you're inside. And something about it, like it's so different from your everyday routine to yeah. be able to sit down and carve out some time to make something yeah, and be like a kid like that, you know, is yeah. very, I wonder if diamond paintings will be the cruels of the future. I, I wonder that too. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of diamond paintings, but you never, you know, you maybe know. in 20 years I will be. You'll love it. Um, But also like I, you know, I enjoy crafting and just having created something Mm-hmm. Like sitting down with with just a pile of ingredients, basically supplies, yeah. and then creating something beautiful out of it is fulfilling to me, and I really, really like that. Yeah, I uh, agree wholeheartedly. I had a dip into like hand embroidery and got really into that for mm-hmm. a minute, and that's when my hands started giving me the shits. But Spellcheck and I both both were into embroidery for mm-hmm. a while too, and Spellcheck crochets and knits and all those. Oh things, yeah, which is we're all pretty crafty people. Craft. Crafties. The one thing that we uh, fumbled about with during this episode was the pronunciation of a certain thing. It's something that I have always called Catherine Home because mm-hmm. I am American. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a listener who is one of our friends who lives in Sweden reach out to us and kind of give us the pronunciation. I'm not going to play that and I'm not going to try and say it. I'm going to look up the pronunciation here. Katrine Holm. So I think it's interesting that it has that little diphthong. Catherine Holm. Good job. Thank you. That, to my English ears, sounds spot on. I Yeah, maybe. And the interesting thing about Katrine Holm is that that is not the name of the person that created it. It is one word, not two. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it is the name of the factory where it was produced, like the company that made it, outside of Halden, Norway. Fascinating. Well, mm-hmm. no wonder I can't say it. And this is so it's enamelware for those of you that are not familiar. And it was made from the mid 50s through the late 60s. And they made a number of different enamelware pieces, but the lotus pattern is by far the most recognizable and sought after. It was created by designer Arn Clausen in 1962. Um, and it was the lotus pattern is the best selling pattern of Katrine Holm. And you can still find it today if you have enough money or an you know, or in a high enough tax bracket. Um, I did, I always thought it was a person, right? Because it looks like Catherine Holm yeah. as the name. So the factory in Halden, Norway, started as an ironwork factory mm. in 1827. And then it transitioned to more modern enamelware in 1907. Interesting. And closed down in around 1972. Um, they produced a variety of dishes, like we said, over the decades. But the most popular line and the notable to the company was the one that hit the market in the 1960s, which is the Lotus pattern. Yeah. So this was um, from an advertisement. White as porcelain, harder than steel. True. <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if that's true. Because it's enamelware, okay. right? Which yeah. was a new aged thing at the time. Um, and the colorful dishes, they were a range of mod colors. So we have blue, green, pink, 
orange, Mm -hmm. avocado green, all of those things. The primary artist behind the Lotus enamel ware was, excuse my pronunciation, Greta Pritz Kittleson. She designed the dish forms and colors, and Arne Clausen designed the iconic lotus leaf, and the factory added them to the collection. Kittleson Kittleson wasn't wasn't bit by the lotus fanatic bug when she was interviewed in the early 2000s for the book about the enamel ware. She says, and I quote, I still don't like the pattern used most frequently on items produced in the mid-60s. Lotus. Oh, God. How I fought against these lotus leaves. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. She was happy to see, though, that the vintage Catherine pieces are still in use to this day. And customers take their pick and collectors between the solid and patterned enamel wear. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, blah, blah, blah. Cut that. Unfortunately, this was the only part of her career that was prolific as a Scandinavian in the Scandinavian modern movement. But I did not know a damn thing about that dishware and enamelware before we started this podcast because I do not see it where we live. No. At all. So here are some tips if you are buying this enamelware. So the factory polished the enamel coating off the top rim of its enamel wear to help prevent chipping. Okay. So there may be minor wear and tear after six decades. It's possible to find pieces in excellent shape. Big chips and scratches should come with a lower pricing. This is obviously not something that should go in your dishwasher. Okay. Dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Inspect the shape. If you're buying a lotus piece, inspect the design closely. You'll notice the authentic lotus shape is wider toward the top and narrower towards the bottom, like the petal of a leaf. There are some knockoffs on the market for non-knockoff prices, claiming to be authentic. You can spot these reproductions when they have a lotus shape that is widest in the middle, more like a coffee bean. Okay. All right. Look for the complete piece. Sometimes the casseroles are missing a lid or the saucepans are missing a handle or the fondue sets are missing a burner stand. They might still be worth adding to your collection, but they should be priced accordingly. Okay. Logo or no logo. Most Catherine Home logo. Kathleen Home. Thank you. On the bottom of some dishes, but not all. The ones without a stamped logo come with paper tags, which are occasionally included in the listing. The other one, it'll say, say it, Melissa. Kathleen Home. And it'll have a C that kind of looks like an old English C. Mm -hmm. And then below it will say of Norway, kind of a circle around the logo. It's okay if you don't see the logo. Look for everything mentioned above to see if it's an authentic piece. Here are the color listings. Okay. Dark red and white. Red and white. Red, orange and white. Orange and white. Yellow and white. Turquoise blue and sky blue. Turquoise blue and white. French blue and white. Royal blue and white. (laughs) Butterscotch and white. Also known as baby shit green. It does not look good. Mm -hmm. Lime and lemon, lemon lime. (laughs) Interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lime green and white. Avocado green and white. Olive green and white. Brown and white. Black and white. Pink and white. What's your favorite? Uh, The lemon lime. The lemon lime? Absolutely. I'm either uh, an olive green or pink. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, the yellow though. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're there and there it is an expansive enamelware company. Yeah. Like being able to find pieces. You can come across lots of examples online of complete collections or what they would have included, sizes, shapes, mm-hmm. all of the above. All of the above. I the only way I probably would collect it because it's out of what I would spend 
on something like this? Yeah. I would have to find it by somebody that like didn't know what they had. But yeah. I have never seen a piece of this here in Idaho where we live. Yeah, I recognize it, but that I, I, I don't think it's anything mm-hmm. I've seen out in the wild. Mm-hmm. It's just not. It's just one of those things you don't find. Um, I had a wonderful time sitting down with Christy and learning about the history of the home she's living in, which was her childhood home, and how she is decorating it. She recently, just this week, put up a gigantic real Christmas tree in their living room. It's like 14 feet tall. Holy cow. Because where they live, they live out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by woodlands. Okay. Might as well. Yeah. What a beautiful, I just imagine the Griswolds, like there's yeah. like a squirrel and there's stuff squirrel. inside of it. <laughs> um, but if you did not listen to Miss Chrissy's episode, please do. It is a delightful uh, listen and a way to kind of discern things to bring into your collection and how to curate them. Mm-hmm. Also take a gander at her socials because it is beautifully decorated. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I might do a little deep dive in there. A little there. deep diving? A little deep dive into that because I, I do, I love a cruel. Mm-hmm. I love a cruel. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode, as well as this Curio Corner. To hear even more of the podcast, please visit themothballprophecies.com to kind of see what we're up to over there. We have updated bios, updated color schemes, and some other updates coming as the year progresses. As always, I hope you find some good shit. And I hope that you never forget to look under the tables. Mm-hmm.